Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm well. I'm well. I'm, uh, I'm finally recovered enough so that I can share with listeners a cautionary Christmas tale. I love those are my favorite kinds of Christmas tales. Yes. Well, okay. So I'm I'm working away at the desk and lo and behold I get a delivery. Well, you know, it's that time of year, very exciting. Well, it turns out I've been a loyal customer of REI, the outdoor equipment uh, retailer, for ten years. And they sent me a gift, a Fantastic. reward. Fantastic. And I thought, this is cool. Because, you know, I hate these things where they give you points, you know, and you get six points or 12 points, which is never points enough for what you really would like to, you know, redeem for. Mm -hmm. But no, they actually gave me a proper gift. And it really was. It's it's a fantastic uh, elastic headband headlamp. Mm. Caving quality. Very We're cool. talking a caving quality headlamp. What's more, they gave me two supplies of three AAA batteries, you know, uh, and that's not the size of battery that most of us keep, you know, hanging around. So I thought this is great. Not only do they send, you know, me a cool headlamp that is really well made, they send me the batteries. So I load the thing up and I'm so excited. I've been working at my desk and I thought, yeah, man. <laughs> and I plunge into my bathroom to look at myself in the mirror and I pop the headlamp on. Oh my. Oh my. Blinded by the light? You have no idea. I could have been seen from the surface of the moon. But I'm so discombobulated by this. You know, I, I thought to myself, you know, I could have easily just, you know, turned it on in the, you know, you know, my darkened office or, you know, just seen it on the wall walking around with a little bit of late afternoon light, you know, still filtering through. But no, I had to see myself in the bathroom mirror. So I'm just now just my rods and cones and the optic nerve are fried and I'm panicked and I, I reach up and I press the button. Well, of course, it's got three levels. I turn <laughs> the next level is like an explosion in my frontal. I mean, it's just like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, but it gets better. I still haven't learned. I still have not. I'm still so excited about getting this reward and how cool I look in it. And then it is something I could take down into serious caves if I could ever find my way to the door again. Uh -huh. I press the third round and it's, of course, the strobe. <laughs> the strobing light. So then you begin and to I... froth at the mouth and... <laughs> 39 minutes later... I managed to find my way to the couch, uh, and 39 minutes later, I was beginning to see kind of mild after explosions, kind of like when old Super 8 film gets catches on fire. Mm. That, it was calming down to that level mm -hmm. after about the 39th minute. But 45 minutes it took fully to, to really for vision to clear. So... That was my cautionary Christmas tale, which I thought I would share with everyone. It was I was just so excited about my <laughs> my ten year reward, you know. That's great. That's great. Yeah, beware free things. That's the point of this thing. 
Yeah, and thinking, you know, you're kind of maybe, you know, smarter and cooler than you are sometimes. Mm-hmm. It was, but geez, I, 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 I look fantastic in it. I just that I, I don't, I, I, I won't feel good walking, you know, into oncoming traffic because, you know, it's, it's serious. It's, it's a bright yeah. light. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> REI, retinal explosion interface, right? Exactly. She's Louise, man. Well, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad your eyeballs are fine. Um, <laughs> my Christmas was much less uh, interesting. We, we bought gifts for everybody and, you know, everybody sort of, um, we went to Stacy's uh, family's house for, for Christmas and everybody sort of opened their presents like crazy people all at once. And, you know, kids are playing with toys and, you know, I opened mine. I got um, a cookbook, which I genuinely enjoyed. It's a cookbook for uh, crockpots. I was very grateful for that. And then I opened a, a gift from my mother-in-law and it was it was Axe deodorant body spray. And I thought, this is just, this is, it, she, she didn't even wrap the damn thing. It was just, it was just a bag full of deodorant. And, you know, of course the first thought process is, you know, what are you, what are you saying here? I think, I think I smell fine. But then I was just, I was thinking about it and I was like, you, you have known me for 15 years. And she's like, oh, we didn't know what to get you. Am I really that mysterious? Nobody knows anything that I would be interested. I would have been happier. Uh, a buddy of mine, David Keaton uh, sent me a, a really nice pocket knife. And I thought that was great, but deodorant body spray. I was like, well, I'm going to, I'm never going to use this. So it's going to, it's going to go to a homeless person, I guess. One of the people who hangs out outside of the, the gas station. Right. I'm just going to be like, Hey, would you, would you like this for some reason? I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, maybe just leave it, just leave it somewhere and not, not actually hand it to someone. Oh, that's kind of, true. That could be, that, that explanation could, that could be, of like, that could be rude. Right. Yeah. I didn't think about yeah. that. Yeah. I didn't, well, I you didn't thought it was rude. Right. I did. <laughs> you know? I did. And I didn't even extend that to the people <laughs> I would be giving it to. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I should just leave it on the side of the street for somebody. People will probably think it's a bomb calling a bomb threat. This little black bag full of Axe deodorant body spray. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could just leave it somewhere and then hide and maybe do a little short film on, mm. on what happens to it. Right, right. But, I, you know, the, I would actually think about uh, something like that. If, if I found some deal, I wouldn't go, oh, this is obviously good stuff. I would go, no, this is, you know, something's wrong with this. Something, something you know? yeah, I'm not taking this. Because we've all grown up. I remember when I was a child, I would, you know... Don't put your fingers in the the coin return for payphones because people have put, you know, HIV positive needles in them. All this kind of crazy stuff. This was the beginning of those kind of safety scares. Luckily, I was still able to live my childhood, uh, you know, gloriously phone and video game free. And I played mostly outside. I used to play outside with my friends. Hope this isn't too much of a digression. But I used to play outside with my friends with these insanely realistic handguns, right? Like these cap guns that we would get. And I had this one that looked like a 45 and we would run around and play, you know, James Bond and things like that. And I was, I thought about today. I was like, that would never fly today. I would never be able to carry around a very convincing replica of a handgun to mock shoot my friends with. 
No, no, those days are gone. And and people who would say there's some sort of racial thing there, I no, I think for anybody it would be just gone. I think it would absolutely be out of the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, in you know, I mean, my neighborhood's a really good example because there are. I mean, it's a very very diverse neighborhood, and it's very diverse in terms of ages. Mm-hmm. There are there are tons of young people, as in kids. But I have seen in the five years I've been in this one particular um, place. Uh, I've seen one kid on a bike. There's nobody like playing in yeah, the streets. They're yeah. playing organized sports, uh, and mostly girls are playing organized sports in um, in the park. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't see anybody playing football or just you know in the street or just running around. Or I mean, everyone's just inside playing video games and and you know getting more and more overweight. Yeah. Rios related to me this great story of when she was a kid, she would have cousins who would organize flag football games in the street. And what they would do is they would take uh, Walmart shopping bags and put them in their pockets. And those were the flags that you'd have to grab. Nice. How incredible is that? How fun? How fun is that? In my neighborhood, there are, there is... Um, I say there is, there are about three gangs of roving children, packs of about three or four of them at a time that I recognize now who um, will ride their bikes and occasionally break into the abandoned house next to where I live. Um, right, I remember you talking about them. Yeah. Well, good for them. Well, they've, uh, they have essentially sent, some, sent people out to put plywood over the windows and uh, wrap up all the holes in the house with uh, this kind of... Uh, uh, demonic approximation of a Christmas tree, but with barbed wire just around the house to sort of like keep people from getting into it. And I'm of two minds because on the one hand, I don't necessarily like hearing the sound of windows being smashed at, you know, 10 o'clock in the evening. But I was also like, uh, that was kind of fun. You know, like these, they could do a little exploring, maybe catch tetanus. I don't know, but it, it's it seemed uh, it seemed very anti twenty twenty, and I appreciated it for that. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But um, um, so, Chris, uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, I don't think we've had an intro that long in a while, but I had a good time. Hope the listeners did too. What are we going to talk about today? Well, I thought we'd um, sort of connect to a, a theme that we've been looking at in terms of. Charles Fort's idea of uh, of skepticism and uh, a critique of of scientism, uh, heretical ideas uh, that may or may not be scientific, the idea of dangerous ideas. But I thought one way to think about it. Um, it's been a topic that's been on my mind because of, of the textbook and also some uh, writing assignments that I've been getting back from uh, some private students. The idea of genius. And, and how we're defining genius today. That's been a topic of interest across certainly Western civilization with very different definitions going back to, you know, the 17th century. We've, we've worked through various different ideas. And we have one now um, that I think is, is worth focusing on and, and maybe dissecting a little bit. Um, because I think that... Um, if uh, people have any interest in this as a larger sort of discussion, I would refer them to C.P. Snow, very influential uh, lecture, which became a book called The Two Cultures, which was published in the 1950s, I think 1950, um, 
exactly. Uh, the two cultures being humanities and, and math and science. So in, in, in academic terms, humanities and the STEM subjects. And as we can probably gather, and I think most people would agree, STEM subjects have become sort of the dominant uh, paradigm uh, knowledge system of our time, to the point where uh, I had assigned a group of, of my private students the, the idea of, supposing you had the opportunity to create a film and your subject was a child prodigy, uh, what would be your baseline starting point? How would, what, what would your protagonist be, and how would the, this genius prodigy capability manifest itself? Well, I don't know if it's a surprise or not, but I, I did stress, you know, take the, 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 the baseline most likely to succeed uh, approach. And all six of the students came back with well, we're going to make it a boy because that's going to just be uh, just easier to sort of sell in. Seven to ten years old, and he's going to be a math genius. And then there were two that came in, well, uh, music, you know, mm -hmm. a musical, like a Mozart sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But essentially, we've got pattern recognition as, as the capability. And if you've had an experience with the, the, the organization Menza, you'll know that that's very much how they define um, high IQ. It's, it's really in terms of pad, rather than conceptual thinking, rather than uh, language-oriented thinking, rather than what we might think of with uh, great visual artists, uh, or many of us, how we would define really great musical talent, you know, not mm -hmm. just the, mm -hmm. the pattern recognition side of it, but the deeper sense of feeling. Right. So, I don't know, I thought we might talk about that and what sort of maybe dissecting a couple of these great mathematics geniuses and see what sort of lies behind some of these real people. Um, maybe see if we're, we're happy with that in terms of should these be the culture heroes when it comes to genius of our time? Mm -hmm. And then maybe I know that you and I both have some alternative uh, heroes in our pantheon to uh, to put forward. So how does that sound as kind of a an agenda for the show? Well, surprising probably none of our listeners, I don't have a lot of familiarity with the Mensa community. <laughs> I uh but um no, I that's I I feel like that's a great place to start. I think that um it builds off of our last episode quite nicely. You know, uh, we've talked about scientific dogma and we've talked about the prevalence in culture and in the sciences of a very particular kind of scientistic materialism. So I think we've well established what is particularly valued in our culture. And if I can expand on that for a second, it seems to me that the kind of science and the kind of knowledge that has been valued uh, has a lot to do with technology, with engineering in particular. So mm -hmm. science that can make trains go faster, can make uh, cars able to sort of recognize your voice and, and connect to Wi-Fi and all these kind of things, to make our phones smaller, our, the, the graphics better on our video game machines, um, and, and people who sort of followed that kind of Google, Amazon tech uh, path 
in life have both seen cultural esteem and financial reward for for following their particular type of genius. So I think there's something to to that in particular. There might be an argument to be made that uh, this sort of scientific um, mathematical genius is just more profitable. What do you think of that? Well, I, I, there are a couple of things that I think are really interesting about this. Uh, one, I think that, and and, and I, I want to just mention this, and then we'll get back to it because I think that you you've you've said it. We just want to flesh it out. But I think what you're talking about when you when you stress engineering as opposed to say pure science, because um, I have some some friends who are working very much in pure science fields mm-hmm. that are not getting funding, they're not getting prestige, they're not getting, and what, they, what they're involved in could be very, very important from an overall environmental point of view, mm-hmm. but, but it's not as cool as a new you know, Siri or Alexa or something that, that translates to a retail product that can be on sale for Black Friday. So there's that. But you mentioned something that just is so I just have to share it because it's a very Las Vegas thing where I live. Um, Pre-COVID-19, this was an enormous phenomenon on a regular basis. There were these guys from Silicon Valley and Seattle, mm-hmm. the tech bros. Yes. And the, the, these... the dreaded the dreaded tech bro. And bro is kind of giving them a little bit more masculine credit than they really deserve. We're talking about not even – we're talking about the real revenge of the nerds here. <laughs> I mean, these guys made the <laughs> AV guys back in junior high look like jocks, uh-huh, okay? Right. I'm talking about some, some dysfunctional male figures. But they come down to Vegas with an enormous amount of money because none of them are married, of course. None of them have anything even close to girlfriends. I'm sorry. I am going to diss about this because this is part of my anthropology in my city. I've seen this firsthand. And I actually had to go report on it. It was very, very weird. They come down with an enormous amount of spending money, no experience with females whatsoever, but they're excited about them. <laughs> and what can they leverage? Some really expensive hookers. Uh-huh. And if you talk to the expensive hookers, I'm talking about the gals who are sort of like on the three grand an hour sort of, you know, mm-hmm. some really class, maybe it was between 700 and three grand an hour. Yeah. And of course it gets, you know, there there's another category that's harder to, they don't basically speak to anyone. But I have spoken to several women in this category. And one of them I've advised to just write a screenplay because it is absolutely hysterical comedy. It is just, it's just fantastic. It is beyond belief because here are some guys who have really no experience with with girlfriends on on really any level mm-hmm. they're not really sure they what to do with women they just know that it's a status thing mm. and so it's kind of somewhere between hilariously uh awkward and also in a sense deeply offensive as mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. women as commodities mm-hmm. so there's kind of mm-hmm. a both a, a very ridiculous absurdist um bad 
uh, comedy, mm -hmm. a bad guerrilla comedy, and also something really kind of dark about it in an anthropology sense, which, and I think anybody who's uh, um, certainly lived in Vegas and, and done any rounds of the club sort of scene knows what I'm talking about. It's, it's a really big deal where there would be a tribal investment of fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for a table. I mean, you and I wouldn't even want to sit at these tables. And then you pay three to $500 for a bottle of vodka that you could walk right around the corner and pay $12 for, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, so it's, it's, it's just this, it's kind of obscene on, on multiple levels. And oddly enough, it's it's completely it's not asexual but it's certainly not erotic mm -hmm. and and the women who were talking about just they're so funny because you know they're all you know women at, working at that level in in the business uh in in the sex care field are often extremely sharp and very good reads of of people and human nature and um I'm 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 encouraging this one uh, gal to really just to get something down on paper because I think it's a winning winning script idea. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of a roundabout way of answering that. I, I I think though that that what links both of my responses to what you said is that there is something about not the value of the intelligence demonstrated in in stem fields it's not about the pursuit and the value of science that we've been talking about in previous episodes it's about the commercial viability of it mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you, you you peel that away and I mean no one's very interested in uh, my friend you know working in Hawaii on uh, marine biology with some really important insights about the future of the right, Pacific Ocean right. yeah you know, mm -hmm. which is kind of important. <clears throat> it is. Uh, no, no one's very interested. I mean, my, my friend in Australia is one of the leading authorities in the world on ants. And as he says, you know, as ants go, so will we go. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're an indicator of environmental health, as say frogs. And, you know, there are, there are a few, you know, other types of creatures that would be in that category. But Look at the climate scientists, you know, they're not embraced. Mm -hmm. It's people inventing some new app. You got to yeah. have a new app, you know. And usually and it's like usually those apps are reinventions of things that already exist. I remember reading this white paper from a startup in San Francisco that was talking about how you could go to oh, I don't know, a kind of machine that had snacks in it and you could use an app and through PayPal or Venmo, you could select what snack you wanted, and it would beam it down to the machine, and it would provide you with the snack. And, you know, you look at that, and you think, congratulations, you just invented a vending machine. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, another thought, I, I wanted to say it before I lost it, but, you know, in the, I, I'm in the editing business, right? That's how I make most of my money, is by editing books. And I, I charge per project... And I tried to sort of, you know, portion that. Like, I tried to get a feel for how messed up the manuscript is. And then I do a, my best estimate of how long it's going to take me to fix it. And then I basically charge hourly, right? It's about $100 an hour. Okay, if this is going to take me 10 hours, 1000 bucks, easy, right? However, if I can really put effort into the project and finish that in 
seven hours, I still get that thousand bucks, right? So I'm thinking of these sex workers in Las Vegas with these awkward nerds, and I'm thinking $3,000 an hour, but if you can get it done in 15 or 20 minutes, you're getting a great ROI on that. So, oh, believe me, they're getting it done in like five minutes. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, they are. But no, I think that that's. I think, I think that what you're talking about that's so interesting is again our sort of enshrining these people um, as our modern day wizards, and they are the most kind of gnostically speaking archonic versions of wizards that you can possibly talk to because they're not wizards in the sense that they understand magic or you know the spiritual realm or anything like that what they are is glorified translators they're people who can speak a language that you and i can't speak which is code right um Mm -hmm. but the the kind of artistic thing that they're bringing to coding and this is not true of all of them there have been some there's a really fascinating video game that I want to play called Everything, uh, which essentially in the game you can become anything in the environment. So you can spend the day as a rock or a goat or some Chinese takeout or whatever. And the whole time you're playing the game, you're listening to uh, recorded lectures by Alan Watts. So people who people who can do <laughs> code great. and have a bit of this artistic sensibility to them, they are doing really cool things. I don't want to negate those at all, but what we largely see and what ends up getting cycled through this kind of pump and dump Wall Street style scam of, you know, IPOs, et cetera, on in San Francisco are people who have essentially not a creative artistic bone in their body, but are really, really good at speaking a language that you and I can't speak. And so that's where the problem comes in. Exactly. And I think a lot of, I mean, the the problem for me is compounded. Uh, I I went out and and really uh, investigated in a journalist sense of of a few people who had been uh, not friends of mine in college, but they were colleagues, you know, they were classmates uh, in technical terms. And, uh, you know, what I found was that, you know, their their goal was really to sell a business plan uh, to venture capitalists who uh, were sympathetic to uh, engineering based ideas. They were not interested in starting up businesses. They were not interested in employing people. They were not interested in being entrepreneurs in any sense that mean that means anything to me. You know. Uh, they didn't want to do anything with involving payroll and uh, HR and training mm-hmm. of, of staff mm-hmm. and building a brand. You know, they wanted just a quick payout for you know, basically reinventing a vending machine. Oftenly, often you know, or some sort of you know, I, it just seems so so trivial. So I think some of our, uh, if we seem petulant about this, I, I think. It is certainly some resentment about the enormous amounts of money being thrown at these people, but it's also the kind of the fact that it's not as interesting. Like this Mm -hmm. game that you're talking about Mm -hmm. of of turning into a rock or a goat and listening to lectures about Alan Watts. I mean, that's terrific. That's to me, that's very cool. And I would, you know, if if we saw more of the those things rather than essentially, you know, shoot 'em up games. With weirder and weirder graphics, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, that just kind of—I I really did make an effort 
to to get into some video games and I because uh, I wanted to touch base with you know the world of, of some of my students and I, I just thought look I'm sorry this is just not this is not interesting enough I can only um, play video games for about 30 minutes I have a Nintendo Switch and I have a game called Dark Souls where I'm this knight who fights uh, it's it, it's world renowned for being an incredibly difficult game and I can attest to that because I've spent cumulatively like three hours trying to kill this enormous butterfly uh it's good to decompress, but I'm definitely not a gamer in the sense that, you know, people will pump five or six hours a day into these things. I just, I can't do it. You know, I have a, a full Kindle that's waiting for me to do these things. But I, I kind of wanted to pivot because, you know, these these tech bros, to use that parlance again, um, ha- it became sort of enshrined in the early, oh, I don't know, noughties, early tens, maybe as uh you know these sort of uh, gatekeepers of the future right and they had all these wonderful predictions for what was going to happen and probably most famous among them was a gentleman named ray kurzweil who i know you're familiar with um, yes he's now the the google head of technology for people who um who may not know but he's um He's a noted futurist. He's a transhumanist. I, David, I just want to interject this a little. He, he really is uh, someone who believes in the, the singularity. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if we need to define that for people, but let's do that re- just real quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it, it, it's it is a hypothetical uh, historical moment where human cultural evolution, in terms of technology reaches a point where we are no longer effectively human and the concept of human history no longer makes sense. We are so integrated with technology, particularly ubiquitous computing, supercomputing, nanotechnology, and robotics, uh, artificial intelligence. We have our, basically our technological stream of evolution. Um, and I want to talk about that at some point. To what extent the term evolution can be applied to non-genetic transfer, non-biological evolution. I, I think that there is a big question mark about that. Um, I, I don't know if, if we'll visit that so much this time, but I want to keep that on a burner somewhere. Um, but the singularity has been a great science fiction idea. It's taken very seriously by futurists. It's something that some people, like Ray, uh, seem to want to have happen as soon as possible. Um, it's something that other people deny will happen or are afraid of happening. It's a, for some, uh, particularly the more socially minded people, I think it's a, the definition of complete dystopian future. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's a very big sort of issue. Um, but it, it's certainly something, it's a fetish for, for anyone who's involved in futurism or transhumanism, the idea that you could somehow leave the body, upload into some sort of immortal device, um, maybe go out into the stars in case the earth is so polluted we can't mm-hmm. uh, focus because we haven't funded people like my friends in uh, Hawaii and Australia, the entomologist. We've instead focused on people reinventing vending machines. Yep. Um, so there's 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 all of that. But anyway, that's that's Ray's background. So carry on with what you're yes. going to say about him. Well, he has a famous TED talk from 2005 where he talks about uh, Moore's law, which states that the uh, 
me make sure I get this right, that computing power will exponentially increase every year. It'll, it'll essentially double every year. And that's the basis of the TED Talk. But he makes some interesting claims within the video. Remember, this is now 15 going on 16 years ago. And these kind of Nostradamus-like predictions are what got Kurzweil on the map, including things like the singularity and, and stuff like that. And I just want to kind of go over them quickly, not to not to dunk on him, not to, you know, throw egg in his face. But what I want to talk about once I sort of list these things is is why they didn't happen, right? Particularly why he was wrong. Because I think there's an interesting line of questioning there about the limits of this scientism. Okay? So okay. The first one that, that struck me right off the bat is he's talking about the existence of uh, di type 1 diabetes in pigs. And he says that through nanotechnology, which is this process by which uh, molecular level structures, and, and he's very hot on this in the, in the lecture, about these molecular structures that are tiny, 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 but look like little robots are able to fix genetic conditions. And he says that they're already fixing this in pigs. And so he says that by 2010, this nanotechnology will have completely cured type 1 diabetes. Now, did that happen? Uh, no. No, it didn't. Not that I know Not of. Not that I know of either. The second thing that he talks about are solar panels. He says, now, the, currently, the reason why people don't use solar panels is because they're large, clunky, expensive, and, and not carbon neutral. In fact, the carbon footprint to manufacture a solar panel, uh, it, it's never made up for in the saved carbon cost of having the solar panel in the first place. So in this kind of extremely ironic turn of events, a solar panel is a carbon net negative. Um, and he's saying this in 2005, he says, with advanced technology, this will all be fixed by 2010. Uh, no, still, still not the case. They're still large, they're still clunky, they still don't work. Um, go ahead. And also, well, I think that there, there are a couple of things going on here. Uh, there's always this promise of, you know, with advancements in technology, the, the solution is at hand. This is a, a, a refrain that echoes down the years. And it, it's very interesting how, you know, it, 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 it's like an exit sign that's always pointing off down some other hallway. It, we never find that door exactly. And, and a lot of these things never come to pass. Yeah. But the other thing that, that, that uh, I mean, solar panels have actually made huge progress but there's also the issue and and this is a a theme of of his i i've been a, a a very close reader of his books one of them is right in front of the age of spiritual machines and note the the rhetorical angle in that spiritual machines mm -hmm. i mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I you know it's an oxymoron but go ahead well it's a pretty intense claim and uh and i love the fact that the the uh the jacket blurb, you know, he's called by the Wall Street Journal a restless genius, and Forbes magazine calls him the ultimate thinking machine. You know, I, I, I frankly don't know if I would want to uh, be be called either of those. And I, if I was thought of in terms of a restless genius, 
all I have to do is think about that headlamp in the mirror and I'm, I'm instantly cured. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I have, I, I think I, I do something similar to your headlamp experience experience every other day. So I'm right there with you, man. But you know, the other thing that, that is absolutely missing from all of his timelines, all of his predictions or the, the most that he will do is, is a dismissive thing of, well, that's a capitalism issue. In other words, the economics aren't right. I mean, I'm sorry, that's a big factor for someone who is really as much of an entrepreneur and an inventor as, as more than he is a pure scientist. And I think he would say the same thing. I don't think he would describe himself as a scientist, really. Uh, a good scientific background, but he's, he's considered an inventor. Um, I mean, the economics, the timing, the cultural timing, the social acceptance of technology is no small thing, you know? Uh, I mentioned in an earlier episode talking about the alternative to chemotherapy being antigen treatment, which is the antigen concept is, to, is a massive stimulus uh, for the body's immune system. It's like a, it's like a massive vitamin a, you know, boost rather than a chemical attack. Sure. Well, that technology is around, but we can't make it affordable enough mm. for big pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies to make widely available. So, I mean, I have a real problem with some of these, these technical evangelists. Uh, and Eric Drexler, who's the nanotechnology uh, evangelist, um, I understand that they get on these soapboxes when they're speaking to venture capitalists and banks trying to raise money. I, I get that. But when they keep harping on this in the media and to the public about, well, these things have been achieved. We, we, we ticked off that box. Well, no, we didn't. Mm -hmm. And it, it isn't just a simple matter that this technology exists and now everyone, you know, uh, has access to it. And, I mean, you mentioned Moore's Law, which... I think most people would, would have some idea about how, the, uh, what, I mean, Gordon Moore was, was a technologist. He was the head of Intel. And his, his, uh, his framework here is about uh, transistorization and integrated circuits mm -hmm. becoming more and more efficient, basically shrinking in size, increasing in computing capability, and being, re you know, reducing in price. Mm -hmm. And that you could chart that on an exponential sort of basis and apparently we, we may be getting to a point where that's running out of steam now because we can only get things so small before a whole new kind of technology, supercomputing, comes in. But we have this framework that is often talked about, and Ray talks about it, about knowledge doubling exponentially. Well, I'm sorry to say that's a very misleading claim because... Knowledge may be, as in information, notice we always hear about information overload. Have you ever heard of imagination overload? I I've never not. once heard that expression. I have not, but never that's once. a great line. I have not heard of it, but it's a great line. I have never, never heard of that, and I think that's worth thinking about, you know? Mm -hmm. we, we have an information overload, but we certainly do not have an, inf you know, an imagination overload. No mm. way. Mm. But to get this knowledge doubling, you know, every six months or every, you know, well, meanwhile, literacy and numeracy rates, particularly in America, continue to crash. 
you know we, we the New York Times is is now heading towards uh, we we may reach a point in the next couple years where it's where it's aimed at the fourth grade reading level mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. that's not out of the question if we're going to talk about exponential things Ray you know we can talk we can talk about negative exponential or exponential decline mm-hmm, too mm-hmm. Um, I mean we've got a real real problem with people being able to basically understand anything. One of my students did this hilarious Vox Pop video of just stopping some people on the street and and getting them to explain leap year, why we have leap year. Right. I mean, you you can see people's brains melting down. They have no idea whatsoever. None. And that's kind of a trivial sort of example in a way. But... My point is that that we have this notion that we're creating this huge, rich source of fantastic intellectual capability and that everyone is sharing in this evenly, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just not so. It, we're having, a, we have a, a, an intellectual imbalance that, that is really parallels our economic imbalance, you know? We do, and I think that... Something that a thinker like Kurzweil might have been leaving out of his his theorizing is the the human element of this whole thing. So knowledge, computer knowledge, can double and double and double, but there's no indication that human beings have any interest in keeping up with that, right? Uh, human beings are not these sort of optimizable machines that can, you know... 10x their knowledge along with the 10xing knowledge of a computer and you know oh if only the machines ran faster then then people would would know this and then there's another very human element the first thing that comes to mind not to get too into current events but you know the advent of things like quote unquote fake news right so Mm -hmm. you see in human beings this kind of uh freudian ability like it's it's almost if if the if the if the computers represent what Kant would call the hypothetical imperative, right, which are these these things that need to be done on a daily basis, like the human brings in the categorical imperative, right? And the categorical imperative, as far as I understand it, is this urge to jump off cliffs when you're near to them, right? It's this completely anti-progress, um, uh, uh, at times self-destructive death drive to completely flip the chessboard, as you said last episode, and and mess everything up, right? So if you have machines that are accelerating at the rate that we tell them to algorithmically, it's necessarily going to come into a nasty conflict with human beings who, frankly, our, our death drive is one of the most important parts of our entire existence, right? The, the Thanatos. exactly right like the, like the the urge to 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 smear you know paint over a, a famous painting like the Joker in the in the 1990 Michael Keaton Batman film right um, mm-hmm. the, this urge to to mess things up and to make our lives more difficult on on purpose because of all these sort of internal things that we haven't processed or maybe that we don't even want to process. You know, so I see this as a really interesting car crash of, again, you know, algorithmically driven artificial intelligence that wants to reach a certain point and human beings that are 
inherently self-destructive, right? And by the way, I'm not saying that that self-destructive um, impulse is negative because I think that's at the heart of, of all artistic innovation. And I think it's at the heart of artistic creation. So I think it's extremely important to what human beings do, but you would never program that into a machine. You see what I'm saying? So you, you get to this, you get to this impasse, if you will. Well, you know, it's interesting about programming it into, because I mean, two great writers who are sort of, I think, heroes of both of ours, Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick, you know, wrote both hilariously and very darkly about the inevitability of our, our machines taking on board our neurosis, neuroses and, and psychoses, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I mean, I think that's inevitable. We're building that into... Uh, in, in, we've already built that into the system. I think our machines reflect back on us that hmm. the the absurdity and also some of the grim, you know, aspects. Um, but I, I want to pick up on this idea of self destruction because you know this is this I think really is the one of the deepest uh, human themes, um, both in a very creative sense of destruction is the prerequisite for creation and for mm -hmm. new beginnings, mm -hmm. but also apocalypse. And um, I, I think one of the things that has really struck me uh, of late, I've just finished an article about the Atomic Testing Museum here in Las Vegas, which I think is one of the best regional museums in America and in the world, as far as I've seen, for its size. It's just brilliant. Um, but this was, of course, you know, ground zero, quite literally, for... Uh, the whole, you know, atomic nuclear testing program. Mm -hmm. uh, there were there are some amazing pictures of people on the the rooftops of the, the you know the El Cortez and and the the old time uh, Vegas casino hotels. You know, having martini parties with mushroom clouds in the background. Oh wow! Um, it was you know very strange, but. Through that, I got uh, researching again the, the great mathematical genius John von Neumann, who really is considered to be sort of the last person who had such a monumental intellect. He was really able to embrace virtually all of mathematics. He's, he's one person who created more individual fields of mathematics than, than anyone else. Um, I mean, just, a, just an incredible... Genius. And uh, when I was younger, my, my brother-in-law, was at the, uh, who's a mathematician, was at the Courant Institute in New York, which is a real think tank uh, academic uh, center for uh, primarily for, for high, high-level mathematics. And Peter Lacks, who's one of the great Hungarian geniuses, um, took me out. Um, he's now 95. Wonderful, wonderful man. Mm -hmm. Uh, he had a fabulous, he and his wife had this fabulous apartment in Central Park West. You know, they were cool, you know, academic, intellectual, genius celebrities. But he had known von Neumann. And, uh, you know, he said that he had never met anyone who was more addicted to thinking and more fluent of mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stories of von Neumann are just he had an eidetic memory, which is, you know, a photographic memory, supposedly. Uh, his just, his embrace of, of every known field of mathematics, virtually, 
and he contributed mightily to, to physics, particularly quantum mechanics. Um, so he is this enormous sort of figure of, uh, that you have to respect. And yet, then when I, I, I was doing a little bit more research, because I, I, I had some memory, he was, of course, very involved in the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. In fact, he was extremely involved in it. Uh, he and Teller were, I mean, really the dominant forces. And what I, what I had forgotten was how aggressive his position about the bomb was. Hmm. He's actually really, if he didn't coin the exact expression, he was certainly the greatest proponent of the idea of mutual assured destruction. Hmm. Um, He was not at all apologetic about his involvement with that technology. And... I mean, I remember, you know, I, I was not the, the generation that got the immediate uh, brunt of duck and cover, uh, you know, documentaries and ads in, in school. But I got the, the second round of it. And I remember Sonic Booms. And I remember how the town of Berkeley, where I grew up, was so heavily influenced by the Lawrence Livermore Lab, by this whole sense of of weapons technology and now living here in vegas it's you know the 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 legacy of that is is still very much in the air so to speak it's your spiritual home in a way isn't it well it is and i'm i'm very intrigued by it in a sense but i'm also i i don't take the shadow of the mushroom cloud um I take it very seriously, yeah. you know, right. I really do. Right. And I think that we need to hold science and scientism to account for that as well as some of the cool things that they've given us, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that, that, I mean, if we're talking about dangerous ideas and, and you know, people like Charles Fort and Rupert Sheldrake being seen as, you know, heretical, um, well, I want to really remember uh, the, that mushroom cloud thing, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that concerns me a lot. And I, I think that we've got a new wave of this with biotechnology weapons. I mean, I think, isn't there a pandemic going on right now that... I think I've know? heard of that, yeah. So it's... Some of these things have, you know, we've we've got to be thinking about these too, as, and not just these sort of innocuous apps, you know, like Uber and, you know, Airbnb and all this kind of stuff or the new vending machine that we don't need. There's some really serious stuff out there that um, that that does concern me. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? And I think if I could ask you in terms of the, the you know, the impending parenthood situation mm-hmm. that you're in, mm-hmm. if, if maybe your ideas on this have have even more edge to them than they might otherwise. They certainly do. I'm concerned almost every day for the kind of world that my son is going to grow up in. And <clears throat> I'm thinking of technologies which on their face are much more innocuous, like Zoom, right? I'm thinking about the entire uh, sort of pandemic. Uh, staying away from the pandemic kind of in general, because that's such a huge topic, But just this idea of being able to do everything from your home, of the the contact between two physical biological beings as being somehow dangerous, Um, the idea that your life should be, everything should be mitigated by a screen, 
that there is a, a kind of big brother type that is reaching its claws into every aspect of your life. Without going too far to the opposite extreme, I'm extremely concerned with, uh, you know, keep making sure that my kid gets out in nature and has a healthy appreciation for the trees and the rocks and the dirt and and the earth that he's going to, to grow up on because I'm so concerned about this ever sort of shrinking human life that we have <clears throat> in exchange for this largely machine life. You know, you can do everything on your phone. You can order things on your phone. You don't have to go into stores anymore. You don't even have to look people in the eye when you, when you buy things. It's all this kind of very frightening automated process. And that, I think, can be mitigated in a sense by merging the two cultures that C.P. Snow talks about, right? So if we're on one side, if we're so far in the field of, of science and mathematics, there's something to be said for bringing in the field of literacy and the arts and merging those two things, specifically talking about, you know, that video game that I mentioned earlier. There are some great opportunities for uh, storytelling with apps like Twine and and virtual reality and film and video games and things like that. There are all these kind of ways that you can merge the human and the machine, I think, in a more uh, balanced way, particularly if the human is always using the machine as a tool and not as a guide, right? So the, the technology is not your shaman, right? It might be able to predict uh, how the stock market is gonna look in six months, and it might be able to predict weather patterns and things like that, but you don't wanna look at technology and science as oracles. You wanna look at them as tools for how you can be a better human being. So you wanna kind of adopt them in this kind of pseudo cyberpunk, maybe more solar punk type of way. Um, I like that. I like. I didn't that come a up lot. with that. I did not come up with solar punk, right? So solar punk is a burgeoning genre of fiction uh, that has some really interesting uh, thinkers behind it. A guy named Jay Springett's a big proponent of of this concept. But solar punk is a positive uh, reimagining of things like uh, cyberpunk and um, steampunk and things like that. How do you imagine a world that has the the naturally inclined human being integrated into a technological sphere in a healthy human way. Um, might be, we, that might be a whole episode that's worth doing. Um, but so bringing in, again, bringing in the literacy and the arts culture, that I think is where we've sort of lost our way, you know, where art has become this kind of commodified product in the same way that science has. Um, and art is something that you simply buy and then consume and then you forget about it, right? And I wanted to talk to you about perhaps ways of living more literate and artistically um, in a way that we can kind of balance out these kind of, you know, smartphones in our pockets and, and you know, like that kind of strange arconic influence that we're all dealing with today. Well, that's certainly what we need to do. Uh, you know, I think one one way uh, in which that starts, I think, is to uh, you know to to reconfigure the pantheon of who we're who we're admiring. Um, 
one of the things that you you mentioned in terms of you know this this just this life that we're living of of sort of online ordering everything kind of in, involved with screens one of the things that really concerns me from my my visual art point of view is that we're getting into this entirely two-dimensional uh, idea which mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. terribly misrepresentative of, of really interesting visual art. Uh, I, I mean, I'm really concerned that people may never, uh, that there, well, there certainly will be, you know, a, a generation of kids who will never maybe walk around some dimensional sculpture pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Louise Bourgeois, you know, uh, who, who, some beautiful things. Um, I've been reading um, about an artist uh, who... I think you're uh, very uh, excited by as well, uh, who unfortunately died at uh, at 27. Part of the 27 um, Club. Yeah. Do you do you want to mention something about your thoughts? Because I've got a couple of interesting things to mention about him. Um, do you want to just tell people who we're talking about? Yeah, we're talking about Jean-Michel Basquiat, the famous artist whose works now go for millions and millions of dollars. He's been mentioned in Jay-Z songs. Jay-Z Jay has a collection of Basquiat pieces. Um, starting off with a kind of funny anecdote, the director, William Friedkin, who did The Exorcist and Sorcerer and movies like that, um, in the opening of his uh, biography, he talks about receiving fan mail from Basquiat uh, before the guy was famous, and uh, he included a, a, an original piece in the fan mail, you know, just something that he kind of scribbled on a piece of paper. And uh, Friedkin, in his sort of typically uh, dry, sort of <laughs> sarcastic tone, uh, recounts the fact that he threw it in the garbage because he didn't think anything of it, which is hilarious considering that would probably be worth millions today. But uh, yeah, Basquiat was working in uh, in New York in the uh, make sure I got the, like the early '80s, I think. Yeah, right? he started in the in the in the grimy '70s and 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 through the '80s. Uh, he was from Brooklyn, uh, African-American, uh, Haitian father, mm -hmm. um, moved to lower Manhattan and really lived on the streets. He and a guy named Diaz were uh, formed a kind of graffiti uh, team mm -hmm. and were leaving these weird cryptic poetic um, messages all over uh, Soho and the village under the, the moniker of Samo. Mm -hmm. They actually made a reputation uh, for themselves as these, you know, cryptic graffiti artists. You know, long before Banksy I was and you say, know, yeah, the Banksy a lot of, of this. Yeah. Yeah, it it was and and to me it has a kind of purity that that is hard to uh, to imagine ever again. That mm -hmm. graffiti could have that uh, that power. They there were an interesting mix of he, he really got on board with the whole punk thrash alternative music scene. He had his own sort of weird band called Grey. Mm -hmm. And but he was also, you know, very much at the, the beginnings of hip hop. His his work is you know, he was is often described as sort of a neo primitivism, which he kind of, you know, didn't really, you know, groove to. Mm -hmm. It incorporates a lot of rich uh mythology, biblical references, literary references, and then a lot of really interesting street and African-American uh, heroes. 
you know, uh, Muhammad Ali, Hank Aaron, uh, Joe Lewis. He he. It's just this thriving, throbbing, just thrashing mix of of popular culture and ancient cultural mythology. I find I've got the the uh, Tashin, which is one of my favorite fine arts book publishers. It's their 40th anniversary, and they have a beautiful edition of his work with some really great writing as well. It should be, you know, it, it should be very expensive. I recommend that people try to get it. I think it's about 40 bucks, but it's just an amazing reference on him. And I, I love this line from him. You know, he was asked about his subject matter. He was 25 when he was asked this. He was 27 when he died. And he said, royalty, heroism, and the streets. You know, and I just, to mm. me, that seems like such a powerful, soulful, humanist mm -hmm. uh, response to life. And then you look at just the intense, uh, the composition, the colors, the the incredible physicality, and sometimes viscerality. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a mixture of anger and joy and pathos and eroticism and cartoon innocence. I mean, it's so much more vivid than the tech bros, I'm sorry to say. Mm -hmm. It's just, it, it's got... Uh, you know, it's that moment where maybe some people have experienced this, it, whether they live in New York or they've been in New York, you know, that moment where suddenly like uh, a siren takes on like uh, a horn solo right. effect, right. you know, right. you think, I get it. I get the music of it. I get the music. Right. I mean, sometimes it just pounds in your head and it's too much to deal with. And you think I'm gonna, you know, it's it's like a jungle, you know. Sometimes, I, you know, I melander why it keeps me from going under, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you get that too, right? Right. But sometimes right. there's this moment of like, oh wow. Yeah, that reminds me of something when you mentioned the concept of a of a sculpture being a bourgeoisie pastime in the future, the ability to appreciate a three dimensional space uh, artistically. When I was 12, going back to the beginning of our conversation, when I was living in Germany and running around with these very lifelike guns with my friend Guy, we were uh, in a place called Neubrücke, which is uh, in the southwest kind of corner of Germany in the Rhineland-Pfalz region of it, right? And uh, we were living in kind of repurposed German barracks, and around where we lived was this great forest. And Guy and I would spend a lot of time, you know, play shooting each other with cap guns in this forest. But there was this abandoned pillbox, right? This bunker that was uh, kind of smack dab in the center of this forest. And we would often go down there and go into the bunker. And it was full of, you know, dirty needles and graffiti, uh, you know, words in German and some some popular words in English, right? Um, and <laughs> and the the graffiti and and the way that the that the pillbox was kind of set into a hill, right? You could kind of go down the hill and then go even deeper into this sort of concrete entrance and and be in this very. Um, it was organic in the sense that we were amongst the detritus of 
human despair, essentially, um, which I didn't have the words for at 12, but I remember getting a very artistic sense from that bunker, right? Of, of kind of being in a piece of art that took, at that point, about 65 years to make. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It does. That, that would be a beautiful experience. And, and you know, to be, you know, it's the dimensional uh, meat and bone side of, of art and living and breathing and being alive now, you know. I, I get that feeling. And, and I think for, you know, for a lot of people, that was what, you know, childhood and, and even early adolescence was all about. And I don't know if that's so true anymore. I think it's something we're going to have to recoup. Yeah. I think it's something your your son is going to have to discover in new ways. Right. Um, and fortunately, he's got a good start yeah. with you and Rio supporting that. I, do, I think a lot of kids, you know, are already couch potatoes and mm-hmm. just kind of... Um, and we're not getting you know, that sense of uh, homemade science, you know, of of studying fireflies and, 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 you know, and and making wrist rockets and uh, and, and checking out, right, you know, yeah, stuff. Mm -hmm. It's it's got to kind of be. And I think that one of the things that that we need this whole uh, substrate template of physical experience and and falling out of trees and skinning knees and 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 learning things for ourselves in that fort sense uh fortune sense you know charles fort that in order for the mature age scientists and artists to be different than just the tech bros Mm -hmm. and the app inventors Mm -hmm. and uh i you know Thinking of this pantheon idea of, of, of heroes that we, we look to, um, John Lautner, the, the, the great architect, uh, the, the mid-century architect, the great protege of Frank Lloyd Wright is one of my heroes. I've, I've been around, you know, in some of his houses uh, because most of his work is private residences. Unfortunately, a lot of the stuff uh, isn't, um, you, you, you can't just walk in. Um, but I mean, what a genius in the sense of dimensionality and reality. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it's this isn't stuff on a page or on a screen, or it's not some algorithm. Not that algorithms aren't very powerful in the world. I know they are, mm-hmm. um, but this is something very physical with light, and you know, he knew about materials. And I've got another Tashin book on him, and you look back. At he grew up in uh, in Michigan, and uh, he and his father built this pretty rough and ready, but still quite beautiful cabin on uh, the shore of of like one of the Great Lakes. And so, as a young boy, he started off, you know, chopping wood, learning about materials, building a stone wall, mm-hmm. you know. So, you, and so his artistry as an architect comes out of that very physical uh, experience. Physical um, and also exploratory, right? So exactly. when you when you talk about genius, um, we think about it too often in terms of these mathematical or scientific geniuses, right? These people who, as I said, are essentially able to speak different languages than, than we can and who can 
sort of pseudo-alchemically make properties arise in the universe that did not exist before based on their ability to speak that language, right? That's what we think of as genius, right? We think of the genius of the photographic memory or the genius of the... the, Genius is not memorization. Genius is, in my estimation, it's an emergent property of exploration, right? So... Well said. If if you're... the the paintings of Basquiat or the bunker that I'm talking about or the or the buildings of of Lautner or Frank Lloyd Wright, like these are all emergent properties. Like genius is a thing that happens. It's not a thing that a person is, right? Because we all can do genius things and then still turn on our our REI light in the bathroom and, and blind ourselves, you know? Like it's it doesn't I'll never live that down. It doesn't well, you brought it up. <laughs> but you see what Too I'm sure. saying, right? Like so so Private Midnight, your your novel, which I, which I think is a is a genius work of art, is is it was an emergent property of something that you were exploring at the time, right? I'm not Sure, and I, I and I do think that you're a very smart human being, but I'm not sure that you could write that right now. If it was, if every copy of that was burned in a fire, you couldn't reproduce Zanesville or Private I Midnight. I think that's very fair. Or, very or fair Reverend said. American. Like I, I, I couldn't do that with my own works, right? Because it's a very contingent process, and that's what makes it so human. So if you have a human being who's this mismatch of, you know, ambition and 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 love and hate and and a death drive and all these things and they sit down to create something in a moment that is influenced by things that they've seen and felt the art that comes forth is emergent right and in that moment you can say genius has occurred but there are no real geniuses there are just really smart people <laughs> yeah okay well look i i think that's very very well said and i think that what you know, you're talking there about a kind of a total uh, human, uh, and we have you know different models uh, for that. The, the the embrace of of human nature in all its complexity. Um, I wonder then, and and I think this is a question that I, I'd like to hear just at least a, a short response on. Do you think then that when we look at people like uh, Ray Kurzweil, or say Stephen Wolfram, uh, you know another great, you know, math genius of our time. Are we saying that that genius here is being defined too narrowly? That it's not embracing enough of human nature at large? Yes, because like Wolfram with his Mathematica, or Kurzweil with his Singularity. Um, those are two ideas that have a functional use within the human experience, right? Like those are two things that can, you know, have um, unintentional offshoots that that make the human experience better. And too often we apply the term, you know, genius to things that 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 help people at large, right? But you know. <sighs> that's that's not it right like that's that's it's it's simply not a term that you can that you can put to to any any particular skill set right like there there's only genius things that can be done in my estimation mm-hmm
Let me ask you about one of I I, I had I sort of think in threes as, as many people do, and I mm-hmm. the third sort of uh, person in my pantheon, or at least that comes to to mind uh, at this moment in time, great hero, and I think a great hero of many people, um, and it's 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 so important. Uh, I think that she's still alive, but her legacy will. Uh, will live long after she's gone. Uh, I'm thinking of Jane Goodall. Mm, okay. Um, who, I mean, I, I, everything about, one of the things I, I particularly love, uh, there's one um, documentary I've, I've seen of her, and um, the filmmaker has kind of, an, has for a moment an idea that, that I would have. He, uh, or he or she, or whoever, a team of people i think it's the bbc but someone uh does a close-up of her hands which um are real working living hands mm-hmm. i mean they could be an artisan's hands or mm-hmm. you know whether a craft person or an artist or a work they're working scientific earthy you know mm-hmm. they're not some sort of uh you know uh Pretty hands. Mm-hmm. They're they're beautiful hands to me, mm-hmm. uh, but they're very very alive with this whole lifetime commitment to an aspect of science that is to me the most important of all the life sciences um, and a perspective on on life sciences that that does tell something important about the human mm-hmm. past, but something very important I think about the human future. Right. Um, what do you think of someone like that as being kind of a bridge between C.P. Snow's two cultures? Well, yeah, so I don't know a whole ton about Jane Goodall, um, but I love the fact that you talked about the hands, right? So when you look at a person's hands, I've been taking up whittling recently. It's one of my many dad uh, <laughs> hobbies that I'm, <laughs> that I'm trying to take up. But there are these fascinating YouTube videos of people who can make, you know, uh, old old men with big beards out of a, you know, a small block of wood. And I've been kind of following along, trying to learn how to do it. But when you get to a certain point, um, when you do look at the hands, you can see a lot of life in them. And I think if we can end on this note, I think it's I think it's really good. And I'm so glad that you brought it up. I don't think anybody's brains are geniuses, right? Like, I don't think that, because my brain is perpetually racked by doubt and anxiety and depression and happiness and joy and, you know, horniness, let's be honest, right? Right. Um, but, you know, I think people's hands can be genius, right? It's not you that nice. made that. Yeah. It's not you that made that. It's your hands, yeah, and you know that that really resonates to me because I say this several times in this textbook, which is really, I mean, it, it, it's it is about creative writing, uh, a term which I don't like, but it is about that. But it's about uh, strengthening the the mind and strengthening one's being, writing mm-hmm. with one's whole being, mm-hmm. and I think that the 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 starting point for that, and really the physical expression of that, is with the hands. Yep. You know. Yep. Talking with your hands. I, I, you know, I, I love it when my students talk with their hands. I always encourage them to do that. A lot of them feel self-conscious, and I say, no, 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 do it more. Keep it you up, know? yeah, 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 right, right. You know, and it, it's a ming, it's a place of, of me. I, I, I've had, you know, 
before uh, COVID, you know, I, I've had physical classrooms with, you know, like 25 people, and eight of them will, will be speakers of native speakers of, of languages other than English. Mm-hmm. And it's a real world crossroads meeting ground. So I say, look, use your hands, use your face, use your inflection in your voice, use your eyes, use everything you can, use your whole body, mm-hmm. you know? Be a Get human. up out of the chair. Be a human. Yeah. Be a human. Because you, know? because you can never be a genius, but your hands can. 